This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Mike Yuseem, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Okay, welcome back to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM's Business Radio. Powered by the Wharton School, we are here on Channel 132, and I am your host, Jeff Klein. I'm the Executive Director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program here at Wharton. Uh, my good buddies and my colleagues, Mike and Ann, they have turned the show over to me for the hour, so I am flying solo, and uh, we're going to make sure they don't regret that decision for this hour. I'm really excited about the conversation that we're going to have in the hour, and and that is because our guest, he's, he's got a message, and he says, your company and your employees thrive if you create a culture that supports questioning everything without disrespecting anyone, and he's going to tell us how to make this happen. I'm delighted to welcome Nigel Travis, the executive chairman of Duncan Brands, to the program. His just released book is called The Challenge Culture, Why the Most Successful Organizations Run on Pushback. Nigel, welcome to Leadership in Action. Jeff, uh, thank you for having me on. It's exciting. Oh, fantastic. Well, I'm really looking forward to uh, getting into this conversation. And uh, let me just say a few words about you, if I can, before um, before we dig into it, okay? Sure. Uh, so you served as the CEO of Duncan Brands uh, from 2009 through July of 2018. And... Over that time, as well as, you know, certainly informed by your roles at Blockbuster, where you were president and COO, and then Papa John's, where you were the president and CEO, you've developed a very human-centered perspective on leadership and management, and, and that is what informs the book, uh, which has just been released, The Challenge Culture, Why the Most Successful Organizations Run on Pushback. Um, and, and we'll get to this a little bit later, but I did just want to tease it. Last year, you became the owner of Leighton Orient Football, the football club, um, which is an English football club um, and a new opportunity for you to implement your challenge culture strategy. Do I have that all right? You do. I think the only thing, just to slightly correct one detail, I'm actually the chairman and uh, co-owner of the football club. I've got some great colleagues who've been very instrumental in putting into the football club a culture that we think is truly positive for the future of the club. Okay, fantastic. Well, we will we'll spend a little bit of time, I think, first on your, your corporate career, and then um, I know I am an avid sports fan, um, usually of all things Philadelphia, so we've, we've had a, a decent run recently, uh, and I'll, I'll be very interested to see... Uh, you know, what, what this experience of trying to transfer some of the important lessons you learned into the sports context. So we'll, we'll be sure to circle back to that. Um, Nigel, but maybe just to get started. Very interesting career. Um, you, you know, the, the role at uh, Blockbuster, the role at Papa John's, the role at, at Duncan Brands. I know you were at Burger King before that. Take me back, though, if you would, to maybe a, an adolescent Nigel. And what did you think you might be doing uh, over the course of your career? What, what, what did Nigel think at that point? Well, uh, yes. So uh, just going back, that's some time ago. I'm 68 now, so <laughs> just put that in perspective. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I, there's several things I thought about, actually, Jeff, and it's a great question. I mean, when I was eight, I actually wrote an article about football, that's English football or soccer, uh, to a newspaper, uh-huh. uh, and they printed it, and I kept in touch with the editor for some time. So I thought I might be a journalist. And then in my teens, and by the way, in terms of a student, my wife always talks about the fact that my report card, one of its many notable points was it said at one stage, I think when I was about 14, an average year for a very mediocre student. So... Um, <laughs> Hopefully that gives everyone a little bit of hope. Um, and then later in my teens, I was it was suggested to me that I should focus on human resources by doing one of these vocational inventories. I think it was the Strong. Mm-hmm. Um, and that directed me to going into human resources. But I actually was also keen to do football coaching. I wanted to come to America, which I'd never been to. 
And also for 20 years, starting when I was 18, I was also a disc jockey, so I thought about that. And I find it amazing now that the Goldman Sachs CEO is also a disc jockey now Mm -hmm. and apparently plays regularly uh, whilst a CEO. So an interesting challenge there. Absolutely. And we actually we have a good friend here in Philadelphia, uh, Steve Clasco, who is the CEO of the Jefferson Health System, which is the, the second largest health system in Pennsylvania. Um, and before that, he was an OBGYN and led a large practice. And before that, he was a disc jockey uh, here on Philadelphia's own WMMR. So uh, you've, you've got a, a lot of good company within the, the world of DJs. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I think it's interesting. You asked the question, you know, from all that, what did I learn? Well, I think I learned how to um, deal with groups of people as a disc jockey. Mm-hmm. I also learned a lot about <clears throat> leadership and managing through uh, my soccer coaching. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I started that at the age of 16, and as I have an interesting group of kids, age 38, 13, and 11, I'm still coaching two teams to this day. And that keeps me really grounded and tuned in with what young people are thinking, mm-hmm. most of which, by the way, I find very exciting. Um, so I think that was very instrumental. And then um, after that, I did start in human resources, work for some great companies like Kraft, Esso, which is Exxon, mm-hmm. Rolls-Royce, Massey Ferguson, Parker Hannifin, uh, before I landed at Grand Metropolitan. So I spent 20 years in human resources as, as the first part of my career. And what is it, you know, from the HR role, um, how did did that inform your leadership? Well, uh, I think, firstly, I started in human resources in what Americans call labor relations, what Mm. we call in the uh, UK industrial relations, where I was on the shop floor. I saw the result of bad practices Mm -hmm. because I usually spent most of my day resolving problems and dealing with the trade unions. And if you remember, certainly in the 70s when I was doing that at Rolls-Royce in particular, um, that was when the unions were at somewhat of a high in the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think a great movie that I'm sure many of your listeners will find interesting is Made in Dagnum, which is all about Ford Motor Company about that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so then um, I moved back to, if you like, recruitment, management development. And I think the key role I did was group management development director of Grand Metropolitan, which was a British conglomerate with everything from betting shops to uh, alcohol um, to pubs to Pearl Vision, Alpo. We had our, our intercontinental hotels. We had our whole mass of companies. And we had a new chairman and CEO at the time. This is back in about 86, 87. And one day he said to me, we need to sit down and clarify what our organizational approach is about. So I, I, I wrote this down, mm-hmm. and right in the middle of it was he had this very challenging style that had been written up in the press as the light grip on the throat. Well, I thought <laughs> you can't really go around putting in your organizational approach light grip on the throat. So after some thinking, I came up and coined a phrase, the challenge culture. Mm-hmm. And that's where it all started. Uh, but going back to your question, I think being in HR made me think about people all the time. Yeah. And I think it was wonderful um, preparation for going into general management. Now, one of the things that we talk a lot about here, Nigel, with, with our students, and, and we think about the leadership development pro- process, um, we think about the stretch experience, right? Mm-hmm. That that moment where you're tapped to move into a new environment, take over a new team, you know, apply a new set of skills. And we spend a lot of time trying to create those kinds of opportunities um, you know, for our students. As I understand it, you're at Burger King, and uh, your, your boss or one of the leaders at the company at that point says, all right, it's time for you to run something now and put you in charge of operations across Europe Middle East and Africa? Do, do I have that correct? Yeah, no, you do. And, uh, and I, I love your stretch thought because mm-hmm. it's one I've talked about. And having written a book now, I get other books to review. There's a book coming out, and I think it's in the UK. I'm not sure if it's in America, called Jeopardy. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, and the key point of the book is you never make progress in career development 
unless you take some risks and you put you jeopardize an aspect of your career. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I love the way you describe it because one of the elements that I've always tried to do is you've got to be a little bit brave. Mm-hmm. I mean, I moved from the UK to the US twice in my life. As you said, I took this move from what probably could have been a safe career in human resources, which I'd always, from the time I started working, wanted to get as high as I could in human resources to go into general management. Mm-hmm. And I could have failed. It's a bit like entrepreneurs and some of our franchisees. They yeah. can fail. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, so Jeopardy, I think, is a great title for that book. And I think I'd encourage people to take a risk. And, and one of the things, I actually had a, I had a spell at Duncan about three years ago where I constantly said that people aren't taking enough risks. They're, they're, they're very focused on not moving from one area to another. And I think in America, which has always had a lot of mobility, it's kind of concerning that people are less mobile these days. And there may be good reasons. Mm-hmm. But by being mobile, you find new experiences. And America is a country with a massive cultural differences from one side to another. Uh, people don't take advantage of that. People don't change functions. And, and I think very often it's easier than people think, but they're just not willing to, as you say, stretch themselves. And what was what was appealing to you uh, about an operations role? Where where did you see the risk, and where did you see the uh, the reward? If I play out that cliche a little well, bit. Well, okay, the risk was huge because the European business wasn't doing well. Even though in HR I recruited people for finance and marketing and product development and purchasing, I didn't really know it. Mm-hmm. But and I think this is an interesting lesson. I actually went in and said, I know a lot about managing people, but you're going to help me learn all these functions. Mm-hmm. My job is is to work with you, but you're going to teach me. So I kind of empowered the people who work for me to teach me their functions. And that worked out really well. And I think the key to that, you have, have to have a great relationship. And, and, and one thing that, I mean, I'm sure you're far more familiar with this than I am, but a tool that's been around in um, occupational psychology circles and businesses for many years is the Jahari window. Yes, yeah. And, and the Jahari window, I think, is a very simple tool. I've seen it in many companies. But the essence are there's two axes. One is about exposure and one is feedback. Feedback is where you obviously give people feedback and exposure is actually opening yourself up. Mm-hmm. And I think too few people open themselves up. You know, that because they, they're concerned about their ego, they're concerned about being vulnerable. Well, I think a little bit of vulnerability is great. So when I went into that role, right from the start, I was very vulnerable, mm-hmm. and I made a lot of mistakes. And I also did something else. I hired a very good friend who was actually a search consultant to be my external mentor. Mm. So he would go to meetings, and he'd come back to me, and he'd say, Nigel, why on earth did you do whatever I did? I mean, people thought that was not what you should be doing. Right. So I had a third party helping me develop. And and I obviously made a lot of mistakes. And uh, uh, I think I quickly learned just by having so much feedback. And that, I mean, I, I really appreciate that comment, Nigel, because I think both inviting feedback from your team and and from those that you're you're already in a learning role with and while you're leading them and then also being able to have that independent third party perspective who you know is going to be candid with you you know when when times are great and times are tough um h- how do you process all of that feedback i mean how <laughs> you know you're 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 in a big role you're learning a new role um what's yeah. what's the process to take advantage of the learning I, th- I think you have to keep it simple. I yeah. mean, it, it, it's a really interesting question. So one of my, if I can just jump right up to the present day, one of the things I'm intrigued by is CEO development. And by yeah. the way, it doesn't have to be CEOs. It could be the leader of a political organization, a sporting organization, a charity, you know, whoever is running the organization. And let's just say the leader. Uh, One of the things that concerns me in businesses, though, is 
most of people doing coaching for CEOs have never been CEOs. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like in our football team. We have a very important role, which you could call the manager or the head coach. How can you counsel? How, how can I counsel the, counsel the guy doing the job if I've never been a manager? It's a very lonely position. And, and I think you need to have people who've been in that position to help you. So I think what you need to do is to have a third party, as you say, mm-hmm. uh, but you need to just write down simple goals. And, and one of the concerns I see of many psychological reports is there's just too much stuff because most people can't embrace it. So yeah. my simple advice is keep it simple, work on one or two things at a time, because otherwise you will drive yourself into an early grave. And and let's kind of stay with that if we can. Um, I'll I'll remind our listeners for a second that this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, and I'm your host, Jeff Klein, here talking to Nigel Travis, the executive chairman of Duncan Brands, about his new book, The Challenge Culture, Why the Most Successful Organizations Run on Pushback. Um, as you are seeking feedback as you're showing some vulnerability as you're getting a lot of this this data back and and you know you've you've already referenced um the the early stages of your your challenge culture philosophy um you know where does where, where did the impetus i guess at, at this moment to write the book come from and what are the core messages that you want to make sure uh readers understand well I think the impetus to write the book kind of evolved over time. And I think it was something like just over two years ago that people started to say to me, so what are you going to do when you retire? Well, they know me. I'm fairly energetic that I wasn't probably going to retire. (laughs) And people started to say, well, perhaps you should write a book. Um, Now, there were a few people who were doubters. And for those who are kind enough to read the book, the first chapter is all about my wife, Joanna. Joanna's question, the fundamental why, is the title of the chapter. And I sat down at dinner and said, I think I'm going to write a book. And the first thing she said is, well, what have you got to say? <laughs> so, um, More feedback, right? Yeah, yeah. No, no, exactly. Um, and by the way, can I just go back to the previous question, Jeff, for a moment? Of course, of course. Um, you know, I, I talk about the word exposure, but even I, who espouse this, doesn't like doesn't necessarily like all the feedback I've got I mean I'm now in a new career where I'm talking to people like you I've just written a book which I've never done before and I've also started some public speaking and I'm getting feedback Mm -hmm. now some of it is less than good I mean it's improvements none of us like it and I think a very important point I want to make is because you get feedback even if it's done incredibly constructively None of us like hearing bad things. So mm-hmm. feeling vulnerable and unnerved by the feedback is a good thing. So well, because and, it's natural. Uh, I have a feeling we could probably talk for a couple hours here, Nigel. But, um, and I want so I want to ask a follow up on on that statement. Um, you know, one of the most conversation, or one of the really frequent conversations that I have with students, whether they're MBA students or executives who are here for for a. a shorter period of time, is that it's really difficult to seek feedback. And I, I wonder if you have any advice on, A, how do you ask for it? And then B, you know, is there a way that you respond um, which lets the the giver of feedback know that you appreciate it even if it's hard to hear? Yeah. Okay, so I, I think some of it's easy. Mm-hmm. I like I'm doing this. What do you think? Open question. There's a whole chapter in the book about open yep. versus closed questions. And one of the things, I mean, I had a collaborator write my book with me. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why it's written much better than I could write it. So just note that. <laughs> um, and and we were both shocked how little research there is on asking questions. Mm-hmm. So I think open questions is 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 the first thing. The second thing is you've got to positively reinforce that the person giving you the feedback, that you're receiving it well. Uh, I had an interesting debate on a TV show yesterday about how you do reinforcement. Mm-hmm. I tend to learn to say things like, uh-huh, yes, 
tell me more. It's just reinforcing because for people to give feedback is slightly uncomfortable themselves. Yeah, there's risk in it. Yeah. And 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 particularly if you're doing it say laterally or down your your employees giving feedback upwards, they mm-hmm. feel slightly unnerved by it and don't like to do it. Mm-hmm. And 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 it's interesting that again another part of the book is about soccer coaching and and the boys and girls that I coach. I get them to talk about what we're trying to do rather than me just telling them. And you know, they feel slightly worried about it. Are they gonna get the get it right? And you need to constantly say, Yeah, that's right and then perhaps give them a word or two just to push them along. But I think there is a art in encouraging more and more feedback to give be to be given to you. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think I mean it, it really becomes part of a culture, right? Where where if you can have that kind of candor and you can have two-way feedback, um, I, I imagine that's really going to inform a lot of, of the challenge culture philosophy. Well, yeah, and you asked about the challenge, what is the yeah. challenge culture, and I never answered the question. I, I knew we'd get there. <laughs> yeah, so, so I think the first thing I'd say, I think there's two parts to the challenge culture, and it's interesting, since I wrote the book, I've become even clearer on this. Mm-hmm. There are two words, challenge and culture. The two come together, and I think everyone focuses, and indeed I did until I thought about it some more, on the challenge part, mm-hmm. which is really, you know, going back to my days with Grand Met, was the ability to challenge the status quo and constantly look for better ways to solve business problems. Mm-hmm. And and you do that by getting feedback from all kinds of angles. And, and the way I always describe it to people, because it's the simplest way to think about it, imagine you're in the middle of an organization, you're doing some work, you want to encourage feedback from your boss, which, as we've just discussed, bosses aren't always good at giving feedback. Mm-hmm. Secondly, from your colleagues, which is somewhat uncomfortable, uh, because if you're a finance person, do you really want the marketing person telling you what you could improve? My view is you should. Mm-hmm. And then another area that is difficult and not done very often is to ask the people who work for you, and they probably know you better than the other two groups to give feedback. So that's that's the open element of it. Mm-hmm. The next element is it should always be done in an incredibly civil way. And as I've been talking to various broadcasters over the last uh, couple of weeks, uh, this is obviously a subject that's uh, very close to everyone's uh, thinking right now. Right. Um, I think the key word in all this is openness. And a word I constantly use is why. Why do you do something? Why and how did we get there? And on and on and on. But the other part of the equation is the culture. Uh, and goes back to your question right at the start about human resources. You mm-hmm. need to build a great culture. And to me, a great culture is where people are engaged, people want to be. Some of it can be, let's um, say, hygiene factors. I mean, one of the great things at Duncan is people get free ice cream, free donuts, free coffee. And I'm always shocked people come and say, wow, what a great place to work. It's that, it, on the surface, people think it must be a great place to work. And if you can build on that, the culture gets better and better. And I truly think we've had a great culture in my nine and a half years at, at, at Duncan. So essentially that's it. The book describes all through my career how I became much more focused on challenging the status quo, particularly through my time at Blockbuster, how I implemented it at Papa John's, but more recently, Dunkin' Brands, and then finally, and very recently, in the last year and a quarter at the football club. Uh, Fantastic. And that's a great setup, I think, to the rest of this conversation, because it would it'd be great to dig into this framework and, and think back across your career, you know, both for the successes and the failures and, and some examples of how we're able to build the challenge culture. Um, it, you know, I was struck, uh, and I think in some of the the press that's been out of, around the book, uh, you describe your first meeting with um, with the Dunkin' Donuts leadership team at that point, right? And and you walked yep. in, um, and and maybe if if you would, can you just kind of take us through that first meeting and what was it in your mind at, at that point? You know, 
what are you concluding about culture and what kinds of goals are you going to set moving forward? Well, yeah, so the first, I, I, I came from Papa John's where we used to have weekly meetings and certainly I think we had a, forget some of the issues of Papa John's right now and I think people really have to separate the now from the then. Yeah, I left Papa John's nearly 10 years ago, so uh, a long time ago. But we had we had the challenge culture, and just as, as a matter of record, the people I inherited from John Schneider, I didn't change at all. Mm -hmm. So people often ask me, well, can you change people? And I think you can if you reinforce positive behavior. Mm -hmm. So I came from the challenge culture. I came to Duncan. The first thing I noticed was we had a leadership meeting previously once a month, and I wanted it once a week mm -hmm. because effectively even though it's about food it's really retail so things happen every day if people don't turn up today because of the weather or bad service or whatever they don't come back tomorrow you don't i mean if you go to a car dealership and or think about going to the car dealership and the weather's bad uh today you'll go back next week probably to look at the car mm -hmm. in our business we have such frequency you will lose it so mm. so there is a an impatience that comes from retail. So we, I felt we had to have a, a weekly meeting. And the first thing that struck me was there was no data. We then talked about what we sh should be doing. And it became very clear because no one commented on anything. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the first things I always say when I go into a new organization is, you know, we're all part of a team. Forget what your job is. So if you're the legal person, take off your legal title. You're now a general manager. And you have the freedom to talk about anything in the meeting. Mm -hmm. So if we're talking about a new promotion, hey, you can have a view. I mean, I want you to have a view. And the reason I say that is I want people to think deeply about the business. So, so I went there, and no one would say anything about anything. I mean, it was, it was actually like going to a funeral is probably the best way of describing it. It was very somber, very quiet. And perhaps your listeners have already got the view that, you know, I think I'm relatively extrovert, but I also think the business should be fun, mm -hmm. which sounds trite, but I think it's important. You spend an awful lot of time working. Let's make it fun. Mm -hmm. And this atmosphere was just, just turgid. Uh, the net result was effectively over the next year or so, we changed just about everyone on that team and brought in a bunch of new people. Uh, and, it took us probably at Duncan two years to get out of that vacuum. But again, you had to model it. I had to model the behavior. And one of the, one of the other stories in the book is how I brought in a guy who actually came from Starbucks uh, called Paul Tuig, uh, who, who very demonstrably challenged me in front of the rest. That truly got the challenge culture going because the most difficult thing for most people in the challenge culture, is to challenge the boss in front of their colleagues. Yeah, that is not what most people do, and 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 it is uncomfortable. Some of for some of the reasons we discussed earlier, but mainly because it's not the way life is. People have been brought up uh, in believing in the hierarchy, and and one of the things I have listed down on what is the challenge culture is it's actually anti-hierarchy. Nigel, that um, I think is going to set up the second half of this conversation really well because, you know, we want to really understand from you that process of modeling the behavior, you know, getting the kind of engagement and, and you know, the kind of fun and joy that you're talking about um, out of both the leadership team, but but really, and, I, and you know, this kind of blew me away as I, as I realized it as I was researching, um, you're really leading about 200,000 people at Dunkin' Donuts, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. So w when we come back from the break, um, we're going to talk more with Nigel Travis about his career, about the challenge culture, about how as a leader you can get the kind of feedback and exposure to different perspectives um, that allow you to challenge the status quo and continue to improve. I'm Jeff Klein. You're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132.
Welcome back. Leadership in Action, Sirius XM's business radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeff Klein, Executive Director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program. I sent Ann and Mike home uh, for bad behavior, so they'll be back next week. My guest this hour is Nigel Travis, Executive Chairman of Duncan Brands and author of a new book, called The Challenge Culture, Why the Most Successful Organizations Run on Pushback. And right before the break, uh, we were talking, Nigel, about, you know, the really you stepping into the leadership role at Duncan, meeting with your top leadership team, and and some of the some of your conclusions were informed by the fact that you weren't getting a lot of pushback, um, you know, from your leader from the leadership team as you start to convene them. Now, part of that could be um, that you know, you are now meeting more frequently. Part of that could be um, that they're, you know, listening to you and, and takes them a little while to react to uh, some of the vision and values that you're laying out. But you're you're setting some pretty provocative goals, as I understand. It. I mean, one of the things that you told them, I believe, in that first meeting is that it was your intention. You, you wanted to take the company public within the next couple of years. Um, and if anything, I I would think you would get some reaction from that. If if there wasn't a verbal reaction, were were you picking up anything that was nonverbal uh, within the room? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I went there, and I was hired by three private equity firms who felt that they weren't on the right track to the IPO. Mm-hmm. I think everyone knew the intent was an IPO because that's what private equity people do. Mm-hmm. But I was told several times, oh, don't talk about it. I mean, let's not make it overt. Well, people need goals in life. Mm -hmm. So I think I did make it pretty overt fairly quickly. And and if you think back, it was a fascinating time. It was, I joined there January 2009. You cannot get more in the middle of the recession than that time. Yeah. And we had franchisees who were struggling. The economy was struggling. The world was struggling, and in many ways it was the perfect time because the way I've described it before, it's like having 35 magnifying glasses looking at the the business. Mm -hmm. But I think the the key point, which sometimes people forget with Duncan Brands, is we are not just a company that can go out and implement. Uh, We have to do it through 2,000 franchisees globally. They are a natural challenge culture because you are not a franchisee in any company without having some concern for the money you've invested in the brand. Mm-hmm. You're relying on other people, in other words, the brand, to manage your marketing, the operational standards, the general direction of the company. So there's a lot of responsibility doing it for for other people. So dealing with franchisees in many ways should be the easiest place to implement the challenge culture because you are getting challenged every day. And, and, and I've said many times, for many people, to be in a, in a franchise business is not for them. It can be frustrating. It can be difficult. Franchisees can be argumentative and, and quite difficult. But to me, the great thing with franchisees is that they all, they all have a view, and it can help you really improve the execution. It can help you hear new ideas. They're very connected with the consumer, which is obviously really good. Mm -hmm. The one thing that sometimes happens, which means you have to make decisions, is franchisees, by nature, are somewhat cautious. And that goes back to that whole discussion we had earlier on about risk. Yeah. Um, and, And you sometimes have to be a leader to take them out there. But I truly think you know, when I think back at the early days, we wouldn't have been as successful as we have been if we hadn't been in a recession because it enabled us to look at everything the company did top to bottom. And and within two and a half years, we did go public, but it's because I had a great board of private equity people who challenged me. We have meetings every two weeks, and they challenged me in an extremely positive way. And here's an interesting thing, Jeff, that most people find amazing. Two of those members from that original board are still on our board as a public company, and we were fully public now six and a bit years ago. That doesn't normally happen. Right. Um, And I think it says a lot for the culture 
and a lot for the fact that the board feel truly engaged and involved in moving the company forward. Too often boards are either rubber stamp boards or they don't feel in tune with what's going on in the company. And, you know, I, I really appreciate the description of these, you know, the, the different stakeholders and the different constituencies that you're managing, the different perspectives that a, a board is going to have, an executive team is going to have, you know, the, the 2,000 franchisees that you're talking about. Um, and, and as I understand it, prior to taking this role, you had only been in a Dunkin' Donuts a few times. Is it, how, how do you build credibility across all of these different stakeholder groups? I mean, the board hires you, but you've got your executive team, you've got your franchises. And as you're saying, you, you've often got to lead from the front and, and kind of take everyone with you. Well, uh, actually, that was a, that's a fascinating aspect of the role because Duncan is a New England institution. Right. If you, if you don't live in New England or never been here, you do not realize how strong it is. I mean, the duck boat ride in Boston, Duncan is mentioned three times. <laughs> the way people give directions is you go down this road, you turn right at the Duncan and turn left at the next Duncan. That's, I mean, we have 1,400-plus stores in the Boston area. Right. So I came from outside the area, and I actually think it was good because it enabled me to challenge the status quo, which is the essence of the challenge culture. Mm -hmm. But I think the credibility point was that I'd been very successful at Papa John's in taking them down the vision that we'd created before uh, together of a on to be the leader of online pizza ordering in the pizza category, which is a unbelievably competitive category. Sure. There's lots of independents. And when I first went there, someone gave me a piece of advice. Don't go there, because all that happens in that industry is uh, one year Pizza Hut has a great year, next year Domino's has a great year, and the third year Papa John's has a great year, and then it rotates. So, it, you know, you don't actually have major gains. But I went there, I think we were very successful. The franchisees, I, I, I believe truly loved what I did, and several of them have recently reached out given the recent issues that Papa John's has had. Mm -hmm. So I think that was where the credibility came from, and I truly be, believe being an outsider, and if, it, if people haven't noticed, I'm actually originally from the UK. Is that um, where that accent's from? No, I'm, <laughs> I'm not from Boston, <laughs> and but having said that, I'm never going to leave Boston. This is one of the greatest places in, on earth to live. After uh, Philadelphia, we believe you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, occasionally you win sports <laughs> uh, championships down there. Okay, yeah. Anyway, yep. um, so I think all that helped. Then the credibility came from the success, I think, at uh, Papa John's. So, Nigel, as as you think about then, um, you, you, you know, and, and – I'm sure there are so many stories embedded within your your leadership of Dunkin' Donuts and uh, of Papa John's, um, but can you describe, you know, kind of in a, in a little more detail, you know, either a, a tough management decision you had to make or a failure you had to recover from, and the way in which the the challenge culture uh, enabled you to do so? Yeah, I mean, there's a whole chapter in the book on this one, so yeah. it's, it's an easy one to take out. It's, so before my time, the company had made the decision to sell coffee, and I'll keep it simple for your listeners, in grocery stores. Mm -hmm. It was actually more than that, but made that decision. That wasn't particularly popular with the franchisees because mm -hmm. they believed it was competitive with the coffee they sold in their stores. I then came on board, and I was already a K-cup drinker. Just to remind everyone, K-cups are the small pods of coffee that you put in a machine called Keurig. Yep. Uh, I'd, I'd actually been had my own machine from my time at Blockbuster, so I was an early adopter, and I believed it could be good. So we put it in to our stores. Great success. Really helped the IPO in 2011, and... I kept being asked by our partners, you know, when could we start selling it in supermarkets? And I was really focused on franchising mm -hmm. because, you know, that was the majority of our business, you know, way over 95%. So 
I said we weren't going to go into channel, as it was called. I then had two or three years to reflect on it, recognize that we could do more than K-Cups, we could do other products as well, but I had this barrier that the franchisees were dead against it. So we talked to the franchisees and said, look, we want to discuss this, but we're going to do it in a very open way. Mm-hmm. And we actually encouraged them to go out and get their own research, and we would pay for it. In other words, it wasn't them having to just listen to our case, which we thought was profound and important. We encouraged them to go out and hire a, uh, a consultant firm and get their own research, mm-hmm. which, by the way, the research came back positive. But they, most franchisees still had this concern. So one of the things that I talk about in the book is often the franchisees' goals and economic objectives are at conflict with the goals of the corporation, you know, and sometimes franchisees believe you're taking money away from them to put it in your own pocket, and this was the case. Mm-hmm. So I believed from the start that we had to share this with a very high percentage. So I actually proposed to the board 50%. That wasn't very well received, uh, and we went round and round on that one and eventually came back to 50%, mm-hmm. but we shared the revenues from our um, consumer products that went into grocery stores 50-50. We launched that. K-Cups have really done very well. We've taken market share from the rest of the competition over the last several years. Mm-hmm. So, so I think what we managed to do is find a win-win. It took me 17 breakfasts and numerous meetings for the franchisees to get there. I probably lost a little bit of credibility at various times with the board, but we got there in the end. Mm-hmm. And now we've launched into other products like uh, Ready to Drink, where we partner with Coca-Cola and other products. And, and the whole mantra of sharing and working together came from that. So I think that was a, a tough time. The results have been good, but I think it's an old adage, you don't get anywhere without hard work, and that was really heavy lifting. And that um, the the shared revenue model. I mean, a fifty fifty split. Is that something? Uh, it is that a, a common model within the franchise no. world? Oh no no no! It's totally unique. And that's what I thought. And yeah, where where and, did it come uh, from? Well, I, I think I think we came up with it ourselves. I mean, yeah. I, I I and and you know sometimes people. I think sometimes people over delegate, and, and I don't want people to think I'm a micromanager. But sometimes you have to think things. True. I remember I went on a ski invocation, I think it was 2013, and I had all these numbers, and I kept coming back to them. I was, and to use the words in the book, I kept challenging myself. Mm-hmm. I looked at, should we share the revenue by number of stores? Should we share the revenue by the amount of coffee beans or K-cups you sell in your store? And we came up with so many different ways of sharing the revenue in the end, we decided to share the revenue based on uh, the actual sales you have through the number of stores you have, which we thought was the fairest way. In other words, the franchisees with the biggest part of the Dunkin' system should get the biggest share. Mm-hmm. But, but the great win, which a lot of people I don't think have understood, if unit economics for franchisees was so important, this was a way to boost unit economics. Mm. So, so I think we changed the dialogue from... People thinking about um, cutting into their profitability through cannibalization yeah. to actually adding to it. And I think that was the reason it was a, a successful win. And, and by the way, just to finish, we implemented it with huge communications. We did. We brought more franchisees into one room for the franchisee representatives than we've ever done in history before. And they all said, wow. Some of these other guys have good things to say. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, let me remind our listeners real quick that this is Leadership in Action. I'm Jeff Klein, and my guest is Nigel Travis, who is the executive chairman of Duncan Brands and author of a new book called The Challenge Culture, Why the Most Successful Organizations Run on Pushback. So, Nigel, in the um, last 10 minutes or so that we have here, um, I want to make sure we get to two topics. One is um, I'd like to ask you about 
your succession plan um, and how you approached the succession ultimately to David Hoffman, who is now uh, now the CEO of uh, Duncan Brands. And then second, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Leighton Orient and the work that you're doing there around the challenge culture. So let me start and, and ask about the succession plan. How did you approach that knowing how important um, this challenge culture was to the ongoing success of Duncan? Well, about two and a half years ago, I was getting towards the middle of my five-year contract with the company, Mm -hmm. and I would have been at that time 65, 66. I thought, even though I love everything I was doing at Duncan, it was probably time to move on and do something else. Mm -hmm. By the way, in my mind, retirement isn't sitting at home and just playing golf. It's doing different things. I was kind of getting that sense from you, Nigel. (laughs) (laughs) So so anyway, um, so we decided to to have discussions. The board discussions took about six months because we looked at different models, and we brought in Spencer Stewart, who did a great job on this, they demonstrated what successful successes look like. They don't always come from outside. They don't always come from inside. But there is a body of research that shows that the outsider insider is a good model where you recruit someone, you give them a significant job, you give them the opportunity to demonstrate how good they are, you support them mm-hmm. through coaching, counseling, and then they make it and the good thing is they have to make it yeah so 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 they could fail so we went through a very comprehensive recruitment process we actually ended up with three candidates who in my view could have done the job we chose dave hoffman because of his strong background in mcdonald's but not just in mcdonald's because he run businesses right around the world and lived in different places going back to taking risks no one's taken more risks in his life than dave because he went to different countries like Japan and China and lived there uh, at different times. So mm-hmm. that's a perfect illustration of what we talked about earlier. So we we recognized that, you know, Dave had some downsides as well, but we knew what they were. Uh, we did support him with a fair amount of feedback from psychologists, his previous colleagues who we did reference checking on, which people often forget. Mm-hmm. Bought him in. We gave him the most significant job in the company, which was around Duncan U.S., uh, he's done a terrific job. He set a, a new blueprint for growth, which the franchisees have, have fully supported and bought into. Um, but in his contract, we had it laid out that he could fail. And now, fortunately, Dave didn't. He mm-hmm. actually got there earlier than the timetable we set out. So I've stepped back now. I'm uh, the executive chairman. Is interesting, and I think this is important. We had two other board members who coached him and counseled him as well. Mm-hmm. So he was supportive, and he got a lot of feedback. And some of the feedback, by the way, people often think feedback has to be negative. A lot of it was, Dave, you're doing great things. You work really well with the franchisees. You're a natural operator. You know, keep building on that. And Dave's going to do a terrific job. He's going to take the company, I think, over time in slightly different directions, which is good. Mm-hmm. Because, again, a major tenant of the challenge culture is you need to completely, um, quite often, renew what you're doing. So he's managed to do that. Um, so I feel it was a very successful process. Uh, I don't want to jinx it at all because so far it's gone extremely well. But I've got great confidence that he will continue to do well in the future. And next week, we have 3,500 franchisees all coming together, uh, franchisees and suppliers and other people coming together for a mega meeting. And I think this will really, if you like, tie the ribbon on the com- on the completion of the succession process. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. And in the, um, in the just couple minutes we have left here, tell me, you know, what, what's been exciting and what are you learning um, as you have now taken over as, as chairman starting last year of Leighton Orient, the football club in England? Well, obviously, a football club is a very different organization from many other companies that I've been associated with. But you do the same things. You worry about people. You worry about data. You worry about financial results. Uh, I mean, I've got a fair amount of money at stake in a football club. Um, The football industry is somewhat archaic. 
Um, it's not necessarily the most up-to-date. We're trying to run the, the football club differently, but we started with one word. We inherited a club with because of the previous owners with no bank account, no credit card processing, no players uh, in June of last year. Right. But we started with the word people. Our first hire was director of football, who's a true people person. Everything we've done is around people. Uh, we we had a board that worked together for 10 weeks before we bought the company, three in the UK and the rest of us over here. We met every morning at 5.30 US time. We got to know each other pretty well, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and we challenged everything we were doing, so, so, so that worked well. We bought the club. I must say it's been the best thing I've ever done. It's been great fun. I think the culture is spectacular. Players who come on loan, which is what happens in soccer, uh, don't want to leave the club. Uh, the spirit amongst the players is, uh, right now, unbelievable. That's somewhat helped by the fact we've started the season 11 games uh, unbeaten. Um, hopefully that will continue on Saturday. Uh, and everything we do is about people. Everything we do is about trying to do it better than we've ever done it before. But I'm shocked how similar it is, given a different industry, to what I've always done at Duncan. And uh, I think Leighton Orient are on the way back because under the previous ownership, we went down two, two leagues. Mm-hmm. Uh, and our goal is to get back to where we were. Right, and and who do you think are more passionate, the Duncan fans or the Leighton fans? Tough to say. <laughs> uh, I, I tell you, one thing I would say: our franchisees at Duncan and the fans at Leighton are both very opinionated. So again, natural challenge processes. And it was interesting yesterday. I was listening to a podcast, and my partner Kent Teague from Texas, he was answering a bunch of questions. And I was thinking, wow, how do you answer that question? Because the questions I'd never come across before, but these were questions from fans. Okay. And again, a perfect illustration of the challenge culture. Absolutely. Nigel, uh, I want to thank you so much for being with us. How can listeners get a copy of your book? Uh, well, um, having been in <laughs> Blockbuster, where we had a bunch of independents going against chains, go to your local independent bookstore. Or there's obviously the big chains out there, Barnes & Noble. Yep. Uh, or go on to Amazon.com, and you can buy it in, uh, with an audio version. I read the first chapter. Or you can buy the paperback version or the hardback version. And if listeners are outside and happen to be in the U.K., uh, there's a U.K. version through Amazon.co.uk. So many places to buy it. All right. Fantastic. Uh Folks, that was Nigel Travis, executive chairman of Duncan Brands and author of the new book, The Challenge Culture, Why the Most Successful Organizations Run on Pushback. I want to thank you all so much for joining us. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, you can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com and be sure to follow our show on Twitter at BizRadio132. I'd also like to thank my producer, Patty, sound engineer and good buddy, Dion, I'm Jeff Klein. You've been listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 